Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture and discipleship. And this is episode 105. In this episode, we're talking about intersectionality and conversion with Dr. Valerie Nicolay and Professor Marianne Kartsoff. Dr. Nicolay is Associate Professor of New Testament at the Protestant Institute of Theology, Faculty of Paris. And Professor Kartsoff is Professor of New Testament Studies at the University of Oslo. They're the co-editors of the book we're excited to discuss in this episode, The Complexity of Conversion, Intersectional Perspectives on Religious Change in Antiquity and Beyond, published by Equinox. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. Grace Emmett. So this was a really interesting episode because um, we're talking about a book that Dr. Nicolay and Professor Kartsov have, have got forthcoming in 2022. Uh, but we actually started by talking a bit about intersectionality uh, and what that uh, means, how it's used within biblical studies. Uh, so this is a concept that comes originally from legal studies uh, in the 80s, I believe, by Kimberly Crenshaw, but has sort of made its way into lots of other fields of study, um, biblical studies being one of them. And it's been interesting to see how that's been deployed in this book. And that might be familiar to some of our listeners because uh, it's also got a lot of popular currency and has had pushback from people like Jordan Peterson. So it's good to just think through sort of what, what that actually means, why it might be useful for reading ancient texts, as well as thinking about uh, contemporary sort of conversations about identity. Uh, and deconstructing uh, some of the critiques that that theory has had. So for me, that was something that was really interesting to unpack a bit more, given that that's quite a um, popular term at the moment. So it's good to see that in practice in uh, some academic work. How about for both of you? What did you find interesting about this episode? I, I love how both Dr. Nicolay and Professor Kartsov just kind of begin by talking about how intuitive and simple and obvious this concept is, that when we're talking about you know, something like conversion, and we're thinking about intersectionality, that we should be interested in the details and the nuance, things like ability, age, race, class, gender, I mean, it can keep going. And and just to, to sort of uh, flatten all of those details out is, I think, kind of like, obviously ridiculous. And I just love that they kind of name it as such. Uh, and then we, we do talk about some of the reasons why people might push back against this concept. But I think they do a great job of showing its value as uh, in, in this conversation in regards to conversion. And I just thought they did a, a really good job of, of sort of establishing why it's important and then digging into some of the details with us. So in this episode, as the title of their book suggests we'll be talking about the complexity of conversion and one of the things that i uh, appreciate about uh, the insights that they offered was the uh, points they made about how we have to we have to have some terms for describing religious change and despite the fact that the term conversion carries with a lot of baggage specifically the notion that paul converted from judaism to this thing called christianity uh, and then was no longer considered a jew we still need some kind of word to talk about that change uh, and so some scholars have suggested that we just drop the term altogether. We don't use the language of conversion. Whereas what they're doing is trying to, as the title suggests, complexify it and try to rid it of some of the baggage that's associated with it by showing its numerous dimensions. Uh, so I appreciated that nuance they brought to that conversation, uh, as well as all the insights that uh, came with it. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at thetwocities.com. So please subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcast. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Valerie Nicolay and Professor Marianne Castle. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us, Professor Carzo and Dr. Nicolay. Hi, hello. So we're really looking forward to uh, talking about your book that's uh, coming out called The Complexity of Conversion. Uh, and I know that something that's really important for you in the setup of, of that book is thinking about intersectionality and the way that we use intersectionality theory for sort of complicating the category of conversion and uh, revisiting the idea of conversion in, in particularly in ancient texts, but actually talk about the nature of that in modern contexts as well. Uh, and I wonder if it'd be helpful for us just to start by talking about what intersectionality is, what the history of that term is, where that comes from, um, how that's kind of found its home in biblical studies. Yeah, oh, thank you very much. I, I can start a little bit. Yeah, the book has as one of the central uh, analytical um, perspectives, intersectionality. And I wouldn't say anymore that that's a new concept in biblical studies because it's been around for, yeah, at least 10 years or something. And I think that's what happens in the academy, that when we are interested in finding out things about, for us, ancient texts, we go to the broad market of theories, try to find concepts, try to find you know, ways of approaching, ways of thinking that help us to, to understand more of our material. And intersectionality, like many of the other concepts that we somehow import and make, make our own in a way, uh, the whole idea about intersectionality, I think it's, it's, um, it's a quite obvious kind of concept that that's why it's so good and that's why it's so complex in a way. Because the whole the, the core idea is to uh, be to pay attention to how how uh, things are intersecting and to pay attention to what happens in that intersection, and intersectionality comes originally from um, gender and and race studies where the whole the whole uh, need for it was to say that you can't look at gender without looking at race. You can't look at ethnicity without looking at gender, that these two categories were very tight connected and that they somehow made each other, disturbed each other. So when you used uh, ethnicity to look at gender, you somehow saw a different gender in a way. I think that's where that's where it comes from and that's the core idea. And of course, when you when you say that you can't look at gender, you can't say, hey, uh, a man is a man, regardless of ethnicity or, or race, then suddenly what about age? What about you know, other uh, categories of difference? Uh, what about ability? What about you know, um, all, all kinds of different sexual orientation, all, all kinds of different categories, how they intersected and how that made all the categories that we like to keep stable, unstable, and that, that they somehow mutually constructed each other. So I think that's that's... That's basically the, 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 the theoretical concept. And, of, and when we use it in biblical studies, we simply use it to say that, hey, we can't study ancient gender as one thing. You can't look at that as a parallel system and say, oh, look at the dynamics of power game or, or, or what's going on structures, men and women. You have to take other things into account as well. So I think that's, that's quite obvious when we read ancient texts, quite obvious when we read biblical texts. But um, it's not like, all women in the Bible are the same. You know, there are different kinds of women in the Bible. There are slave women, there are powerful women, there are virgins, there are widows, there are wives. And somehow intersectionality is a very easy tool to, to make it complex for us, to destabilize the categories and make our, our thoughts and perspectives even more nuanced when we're interested in, in our, you know, understanding the material. Mm. Maybe I would I would add in the in the precise context of working with the notion of conversion is that I think intersectionality, like the way that Marianne described it, also helped us to move away from 
a theological concept to a more sort of sociological, cultural, historical phenomenon and to try to analyze it uh, with with more precision. Like, like um, Marianne said, I mean, spontaneously, everybody kind of knows what conversion is or think that they know what conversion is. And when you look at it with the tools of intersectionality, thinking about who could convert and also who could be converted, then it makes it into something very much different and very much more varied than what we think of spontaneously when we think of conversion. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. I think that's a really useful summary just to start with. Um, and I know that there's this sort of phrase uh, often that we find in intersectionality theory of asking the other question, um, this idea of interrogating, let's say we're talking about gender, but asking about other facets of social construction as a way of, as you said, kind of complicating what might be presented as a stable category to start with. Um, I wonder if we can just flesh that out and think about um, maybe a particular text and we could draw on something from uh, the volume uh, or in your other work, because I know for both of you, this is something you've done in sort of lots of different areas. But if we could just sort of give that as a particular example in relation to text and where asking the other question kind of particularly illuminates other things that are going on that we might miss otherwise. I think that's one I was I was reflecting about uh, thinking whether uh, how natural intersectionality is in biblical studies. And I think it was very natural in our project. I think it's not necessarily natural in biblical studies uh, broadly, but in this project it was. And I think it's reflected. I can think of at least two ways in which uh, intersectionality is reflected in the essays in the volume. One is just the narrative person that we talk about, that the, that our authors talk about. So we have an article about Hagar. We have an article about the Enuk in uh, Acts. Um, we have an article about Joseph and Asenet. We have an article about um, uh, the Pisti Sophia. So th there's different characters that are taking into account. We even have an article where there's no uh, human character at all, but it's a city being converted. So that I think that diversity already shows something of the complexity. And then the other element I think that also works with intersectionality is the breadth of material that we've decided to sort of cover. We have traditional sort of New Testament text. I worked on First Corinthian, for example. Uh, like I said, we have a passage of Acts, etc. But we also have different material. We have um, non-canonical writings. We have more modern readings as well. We have two authors that worked with modern categories uh, and in, in very various contexts. So I think those two dimensions for me sort of embody in the volume the, the main orientation of intersectionality. Yes, and, and one character that that uh, are, is discussed in the volume is the Ethiopian eunuch, the one in Acts. Um, and I think that character is a very good example to make us understand why intersectionality can help us. Because as you know, or maybe you, know, you don't know, but that's the character uh, described as in, in a very complex way as a person on his way from pilgrimage in Jerusalem going south, he's in a chariot his reading, which, which is somehow information that makes us think he's a very rich, or maybe a very rich and privileged person, but then he's at the same time a eunuch, 
which is in the ancient world, some kind of a very ambiguous category. It's some would say between man and woman. So some would say um, has some specific signs of being, you know, a slave, maybe, maybe not a man. I mean, it's a lot of things going on in these few words used to describe that character. And and the volume, um, in order to 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 think, okay, the the point with the the text is that he's converted, he's he's baptized in the wilderness by an apostle. And, and in order to understand, okay, what kind of conversion is this? How is all these different categories playing into that story and even making that conversion a very specific one? And, and, and I think intersectionality is very valuable there to just ask, as you say, ask the other question. So what kind of gender is going on here? What is the sexuality going on here? What is the, the race or ethnicity or nationality, geography? All these categories are extremely into the air in that in that story and we can't just say oh he's a man who's baptized in the wilderness and then we understand a lot about conversion because we need to really dig hard into all the layers of information that we get here and and maybe try to map as as the article in the volume is trying to somehow map the complexity there in that very traditional conversion story the story is often used as a typical story about conversion but it's really so much more to say about that so much complex complexity going on in that in that specific text from the New Testament. Yeah, and there's one fascinating point also in the article, I think, that also shows how intersectionality works uh, for the interpretation of that story. Because one of the things that the article does is look at various interpretation and how, because of the, the religious change, the gender of the Enuch changes for the interpreters. And so, some of them might have a problem with the fact that he's an Inuk, an Ethiopian Inuk, but then because he becomes, you know, in their in the mind of the church father, the first Christian, then all of the sudden his gender is also perceived as his masculinity is enhanced, if you want. And I think that that was a fascinating point in the in the analysis of that story. What are some of the pushbacks uh, or anxieties that people have? Uh, about using or approaching these texts um, from the, from an intersectional perspective, you mentioned that it makes a lot of sense that we would think about you know ethnicity and gender, for example, and a, bunch, a whole host of other things together uh, when these things obviously inform one another and in ways mutually constitute um, uh, one another in these texts. If it is so, uh, if if you find it in your own experience so helpful for these texts, um, what are some of the the ways that or reasons why people kind of feel anxious about it or 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 why is it um, not as popular as um in as an interpretative mode that you maybe would hope it would be i think i have i have at least uh maybe so about three uh reflections on on that topic i think the first one that i hear most often my, my article focuses on how the woman in Corinth, the woman prophetess in Corinth would have been perceived. And the first, the first response that you get, and I think this one you get mostly from biblical scholars. I think it really, the, the objections depend of where the people are speaking from. Biblical scholars, oftentimes, not, not all biblical scholars, but often they will say, well, but you don't have any evidence to reconstruct that. You don't know how these people really reacted. So it, that's the old sort of opposition between, you know, historical objectivity and what you can reconstruct really from the text and sort of projections of the interpreters, right, that 
um, I think also because you're you're working with things that are a little bit less perceptible concretely than you're just imagining things. So my my reaction to that uh, is is always to point out that every type of historical reconstruction is always also the work of imagination. That in any project, even if you're just doing the most traditional historical reconstruction that you can imagine in biblical studies, you're always imagining the past. And so it's not less legitimate to imagine the past for women that did not have a voice in antiquity than for men that had a voice and a literary voice. So I think that's the, the first sort of pushback and reluctance that biblical scholars have. Um, then, of course, you get more um, maybe, I don't know, popular reluctance about the fact that it complicates categories, things that seem very clear and um, easily identifiable, like male and female become less stable. And that's always a bit scary when you know you think that you can very easily say, oh, this is a man, this is a woman, or this is how women should be, this is what women should do, and this is what men should do. When, when this is sort of blurred, then it becomes a bit uncomfortable. And I, I can really respect that. But I think that um, the teaching, for me, what's really interesting in the teaching of the past is to realize that the things that we think you know, have, are since the dawn of time, right? Men have blah, 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 and women have done this and that. When you actually look at history, you realize that it's not the case. You had examples of women who did things that we would qualify as being more sort of characteristic of men. You had example of men who behaved in ways that we would associate more with women today in a sort of traditional understanding of, of uh, gender roles. So for me, I think that's it's a very interesting thing to see that, to sort of destabilize these uh, these categories. For me, those are the two biggest ones. The third one was is that it's difficult. It demands a lot of work and it demands interdisciplinary work, which so you have to actually talk to other people. You have to admit that Maybe in this case, I don't know if you consider um, for the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, if you consider ethnic uh, belonging, maybe you, you need to talk to people that are really well versed in ethnicity in ancient times, and you can't master everything. So you have to work in an interdisciplinary posture and you have to accept your own limitations. And I think that, of course, in academia, it's always difficult to sort of feel like, I can't do this on my own. I have I, dip, I rely on other people to construct notions that I'm not entirely certain about. I mean, I know that working for me, for example, working with the, the female prophetess in, in Corinth, I was like, oh, you're going on a limb there. You have to, you know, talk to archaeologists and epigraphists and sociologists and anthropologists and sort of trust that what they're doing can contribute to your own research. I think that dimension of interdisciplinarity makes it not easy to do and can scare people off. I can also imagine uh, an additional reason why it's 
I mean, some might be critical to it. It is uh, coming from from those who are concerned about gender equality. That that it's already enough to focus on gender. So why why make it more complex? We have a main point, and that is these texts are used to uh, you know argue against female leadership or argue against uh, freedom of gender and sex, for example. So we need we need to work primarily with gender. That that is the the main focus so don't make a mess make it it's more analytically strong if it's simple you know that we we, we these texts are are having a message or are primarily taking taking you know part in a discussion about gender so let's let's stick to that because that's ideologically very important to to you know to make the text be relevant in that discourse but unfortunately that that <laughs> these texts can cannot be read as just doing one thing that's the problem because you, 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 I mean, these texts are not talking about women in general, because then slave women uh, are always there and the, 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 the gender rules do not apply to them because they are slaves. So you can't talk about a gender or women or men even in the Bible without taking into account that, that you know, these were uh, for certain men and women. These were for a certain uh, level and or strata in the population, which make it, that, and that is very important when we use these texts for example, to argue for, for sex or gender issues today or when they are part of these more church uh, conversations, then, then asking the other question for me is always, so what about slave women or what about slaves? Well, when you apply uh, uh, certain rules for sexuality and you know that, that slaves were available for their owners sexually, I mean, that means that, you, that that's always the shadow discourse. So you, you somehow, you can't isolate uh, a discourse. And that is that is... Uh, so it's troublesome to be somehow it's I understand why people think intersectionality is making it too complex, but it is complex. And we, we want to talk we want to talk about the past, the, the very few evidences we have, at least we want to to be, you know, as as fair as possible in relation to them. So I think that these theories help us seeing more clear these these complexities of the past and of the texts. And I also have a last a last point, which is it's really going completely the other way because i'm not sure if it's so unpopular because i mean last last society of biblical literature conference the keynote of the president was about intersectionality so i mean isn't that the the, the in the field of biblical study isn't that a, a place and a moment and a stage where important things are addressed and when that theory had reached that stage in a way i'm thinking okay it might be still be margin in the margins but i don't know i it, Things are coming and things are going. Maybe it's maybe it's not so less influential. Maybe it is a bit influential even. I don't know. I think you're right. I think that was quite a milestone moment, actually, having that address that um, was framed around intersectionality. And the, there's the JBL article um, off the back of that, um, which is quite kind of key to having such a sort of flagship uh, publication to still see intersectionality, um, I, I guess, being incorporated in the mainstream of biblical study. It's not something we've talked about before on this podcast is that interplay between the the mainstream and the marginal and kind of how we better have dialogue between those different components of biblical studies. Yeah. Uh, and I really like what you said about, for example, what it means, or what it was like to be a woman in the ancient world is radically different if you were a slave or a free woman. And in that sense, I think, you know, it's, you provide actually a really sharp objection to the idea that, oh, if the category is more simple, it's more effective because actually in, in that sense, uh, the simplicity of the question, what was it like to be a woman in the ancient world, actually obscures these differences. And in that sense, it actually 
inhibits um, a proper historical reconstruction of um, what life was like. So I, I think you're I think you're providing a really sharp um, like criticism of that of that of that pushback that actually intersectionality is the uh, the intersectional approach uh, actually facilitates this historical inquiry a lot better than um, regular static simplistic categories that are treated on their own. Uh, I really I thought that was um, a really good point you made. I'm glad you pointed that out because I think that that that's a work that lots of feminists in particular are really adamant to point out that uh, valuable historical reconstruction should take into account different categories and not just uh, the dominant ones. So I think we, it's not just for ethical reasons that it's good to think about minorities or slaves or you know people of colors or whatnot, but it's actually also for historical and academic reasons. And we do better scholarships, scholarship when we ask those questions. The, the volume itself is um, an edited volume that includes a number of contributors of international scholars. And so as you all are thinking about intersectionality together, are there some interesting things going on with how intersectionality works in different international contexts, how it's understood? I, you know, I'm, I'm from Norway, I'm from Scandinavia, from Northern Europe, and we are, uh, we like to think of ourselves as world leaders in gender equality. So uh, you would maybe expect intersectionality to be embraced in, in these cold countries, but still, I think, I think the way in our quite uh, homogeneous countries, we, we think gender is the only category of diver diversity. You know, we're not, we're not so multi-ethnic, we're not so, you know, broad or, or so. So I think, I think it's, it's easier in, in for example, I, I imagine it's easier in a US context because it's a more complex country or, or in countries in, I don't know, Middle East or, or African countries, South Africa, where they are more experienced with diversity because in, in to be honest, in my, my country, it's more of an academic thing going on. It's not so, you know, it's not, intersectionality is not a, a saying in a political discourse, at least not to my knowing. So I think it's more an academically, academic tool more than it really has an influence because of, because we are not so diverse we are working on it but not not yet <laughs> yeah I, I would tend to agree I mean I, I I came to the to the French context after living almost 10 years in the US and I'm actually shocked I think <laughs> at the pushback uh, that feminist and intersectional thinkers are getting not necessarily, I would say, in the in the public eye, but in the political arena. Uh, French politics. I mean, we have a, a, a minister of education, for example, that has really made it quite a political program to act against uh, what he calls ideological tendencies in the universities, in the public universities. And those tendencies include intersectional analysis, queer criticism, um, gender studies, uh, feminist approaches, because uh, they're for, uh, in, in his discourse, they're very much um, connected to this sort of fragmentation of societies, 
and uh, focus on identity that makes one lose sight of the universal values that he describes as, of course, égalité, liberté, fraternité, uh, that sort of create the foundation of French identity. And um, um, I was very, I, I was very surprised that the violence actually of the discourse uh, in France it it shows particularly in uh, the question of inclusive language, uh, where people are very uh, divided about inclusive language, for example, and there is definitely a a feeling of, I would say not fear because that would be too much, but of discomfort from academics working in gender study and uh, intersectional approaches in relationship to how the government is perceiving it as sort of this seat of, you know, leftist, extremist, and it's sort of confounded with also the um, relationship to Islam, which um, is at the center of this discussion of, you know, niche identities and that you should not champion any aspect of your identity and let alone you know if you're uh, I don't know like a lesbian black woman for example that you should not champion that identity but you ch should champion the identity of being French of belonging to la république and I find that very problematic um so I guess that doesn't really answer a question about the book. The, the book, I think the context of the book itself is, is really interesting. We ended up having a table of content with almost only women and had one uh, man who was uh, joined us a little bit later in the process from, from South Africa. Um, so I think the in some in some ways the work in in the volume uh, characterizes I think very positive and dynamic interactions between people of of different uh, culture. There is a pretty strong poll of Scandinavian authors because it was made to uh, Marianne and I was also at Uppsala for a year at the time. But there's a couple of of people coming from outside that shed other lights on the on the process. I think that was a really interesting reflection on um, the kind of context in France at the moment and that emphasis on individual identity and particularly sort of the extent to which you um, uh, stress that sort of towards others or not and how much you should keep that private um, and I know you talk about that in the book a bit and that's I think that's one of the great things about the book is that breadth in terms of um, uh, identity and conversion across sort of ancient and modern contexts and so I suppose thinking about the ancient context uh, obviously, one thing the book is doing is just complicating the category of conversion, partly with using intersectionality. Um, what what is it about talking about conversion in the ancient world that is particularly complicated? Um, and I, I think one of the things you draw out is the the broad social dynamics of what what it means to to be a convert. That it's it's not actually this really kind of individual personal decision. Um, but yeah, so how how do we talk about conversion in the ancient world? What does that even mean? Um, and why why is that complicated? I, I think it's um, it's exactly because we tend to use uh, our terms and our you know ways of thinking as a standard for understanding other cultures, other people, other times in history. And I think I think our ideas about what it is to you know convert is so embedded with a Protestant typical individualized typical 
I believe in something and then I go for it kind of context. And I think it's 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 that movement going on in, in the discipline, like rethinking what is religion in the ancient world, rethinking, you know, what is what is belonging, rethinking what is belief, what is faith. I think we're, we're doing this job now. Our, our, I think my generation of scholars are doing this job more and more analytically of going back to the core concepts and, and think, okay, where do they come from? Where do our t- thinking come from? And are our way of thinking really useful? Are they really uh, relevant when we work with these material from so different contexts? So I think that's that's... Uh, that's a new that's a, uh, some somehow what's going on in the field that we need to to say that we think too easy about conversion we think about conversion as it is among our friends or uh, uh, in the academy or you know in the in the current context and then we we must uh, must take into account how different the ancient world is and what is very interesting is that when we do that we also uh, look at our own time. And, and as we wrote this book, uh, which has been many years, a process of many years, so many things has happened in different countries related to, for example, asylum seekers and conversion. And suddenly the discussion of conversion is not only interesting to make it complex in the ancient world, it's also interesting to go via the ancient world and look at, look at the contemporary world with, with this you know, terminology, because it's, it's also complex to understand why are people converting today? And what and and equal and sometimes I'm thinking it's equally complex to understand contemporary contexts. It's equally a mess and a you know as a, it's a context often of migration. It's about you know it can be about gender. It can be about family. It can be about economy. It can be about so many different things. And these these dynamics between terminology concepts in the ancient world and also the political or current current. Um, Sociocultural uh, discourse. I think that's an that's been a very interesting movement for us in the volume. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And we also, I mean, our starting point a little bit when, as as Marianne said, it was a very long process. <laughs> but our starting point was a little bit, uh, you know, Paula Fredrickson's article where she says we have to retire several terms, and in particular, conversion, and. I think we all sort of agreed with that on the on the sort of um, analytical sort of way. Of course, what we see in the ancient world does not match this understanding of conversion. A lot of the volume we uh, refer, of course, to uh, Nock's definition of conversion, this very personalized psychological psychological process that's sort of embodied embodied even wrongly by Augustine and Paul, of course, and that we see uh, today as well. So we we all agree with that. And then at the same time, what I also appreciated in actually the discussion, we had two conferences with the authors before we actually published the volume. And we also realized that, okay, so we don't want to talk about conversion, but then at the same time, we need a term, like language is important. And the religious change, religious transformation, switching, seeking, all those terms somewhat sometimes covered something of the process. But I think we also sort of realized that if we completely suppress conversion as a, as a term, then we lose something. Because there are also, I think it's also important to see that there are some um, aspects of conversion that 
we actually see at different times in different uh, contexts. And it's something I point out, for example, to my students very often about Paul. I mean, okay, so we don't talk about Paul's conversion to, you know, from Judaism to Christianity. Everybody sort of, okay, you know, was enlightened on that. But the, the meeting with the Messiah did change something for Paul. That it Something shifted in his understanding of the world, of time, etc. So I think we also need to um, sort of think, okay, why could it still be, why is that word still interesting? What can it still do for us? And I think the, the volume in some ways uh, tries to do that as well, uh, tries to sort of say, let's let's sort of also try to reconstruct something and not just discard the term. That, that's really helpful. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about the example from Paul. I think some of our listeners will be particularly interested in that. Uh, what's the issue around, you know, whether Paul converted or not? I think, you know, of course, in Galatians 1, he seems to describe this radical experience that um, some have called conversion. He talks of his former life in Eudaismos, which, of course, is an interesting uh, term that needs to be translated. But wondering, like, what what is the issue there? Um, and I, I think this is a really helpful kind of way to bring this conversation because we're about to start a series on anti-Judaism here beginning next week. And so I'm just kind of curious what 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 exactly is the issue of, of describing Paul's experience as potentially a conversion or not? What's at stake? Um, I think well, there's several elements. The, the the reason why it's been criticized, the term, of course, is because uh, the first reason is just simply historical. Christianity did not exist. There is nothing that Paul could convert to. Uh, it did not exist as a religion. So this idea of converting, if you understand conversion as converting from one religion to another, that doesn't work for Paul. And I think it, it that really needs to be abandoned. And it's, of course, one of the reasons why it's led to anti-Judaism or supersessionism, you know, saying, oh, Paul was so dissatisfied with the horrible religion that was Judaism. So he converted to this great new religion that was Christianity and that was so much more enlightened. That model, I think, is historically inaccurate. It's ethically dangerous and it should really be abandoned. Um, but what's interesting in the passage from Galatian that you just referred to, the, 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 where he talks about Judaismus, that I'm not getting into that term, but it's, I mean, it's a term that is very rarely used, probably refers um, to a set of practices of probably a, a particular way of understanding the Jewish way of life in the, in the first century. But when he refers to that, he says that what made him change his mind or made created something different is uh, a revelation, is an apocalypsis, right? He 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 receives it. Something is revealed to him, and for me, um, and well, not for just for me, for other scholars as well. But the, this revelation for me is the, the idea that. Jesus is the Messiah, and if Jesus is the Messiah, then the end times have started, the messianic times have started. And what the revelation is, is how it affects 
the non-Jews, how non-Jews will become now part of the people of Israel and you know what happens with that. So for me, that there is a change for Paul and the change is maybe twofold. The change is recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah when obviously, or at least according to the, to the Acts of the Apostle, he at first did not think that Jesus was the Messiah, which I think for a Jew of the first century is pretty understandable. You don't expect the Messiah to die on the cross. That's normal. Uh, so his his perception of who Jesus Jesus is changes, and because of his perspe- perception of who Jesus is changes, so the messianic times have started, and that's a pretty big deal for an apocalyptic Jew. And I think that Paul was an apocalyptic Jew, but I don't think it changes anything to his commitment to Judaism as a religion, or I mean, even the term religion is complicated for the first century, but for the sake of convenience, we can say religion for Judaism at least. I think it, it doesn't change his commitment to the to the Jewish tradition in any kind of way. I mean, he, he does not become a Christian. He becomes a Christ believer, if you want, somebody who's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but, but not a Christian. I think this uh, question about, uh, you know, um... Uh, understanding what is what is Christianity when 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 is Christianity and what is Judaism and how these um, in the field of conversion studies we need to really rethink that and I'm thinking that uh, the case of Joseph and Asenet that is also addressed in the book is is really a very good one because and then I'm thinking in particular of the reception history the the the, um, the way scholars have understood that story because it is actually debated. What is she converted into? <laughs> you know, she's the daughter of an Egyptian priest. She's very rich, very privileged. She's marrying. She's about to marry uh, Joseph. But in order to do that, since he's um, Hebrew, he uh, or he, since he is the one who uh, he is, she needs to go through a kind of conversion. But the the process she's going through, it's something we do not know. It's not it's not known in any other sources. She's She's eating certain things. She's going through a ritual. It takes days and days. She's fasting. She's dressing. People are looking for, is there, uh, is there Eucharist symbolism? Is it baptism symbolism? Is it, is it uh, what kind of religious symbolism is going on? What is she actually, what kind of conversion is this? And I think that's very fascinating that we do have an ancient conversion story. And we're sure about the transformation. We're sure about she's going through a change, but we, we do not recognize what is actually going on. Where, where is she going? You know, I think that's a very good case and that that's still debated among scholars that it can be something called Judaism, but it's a specific way of it and or it can be Christianity, but then it's some Christianity we don't really know, but blah, blah, blah. So it, at the end of the day, our categories do not work in order to explain or in order to to understand what the so-called conversion is doing. So I think that's very fascinating historically to understand. We don't really understand. We don't really know. And Joseph and Asenet is also a very interesting story of conversion that also has an impact of gender on gender because Asenet not only transforms to, okay, so the correct way of worshiping God, but the text actually points out that her face becomes like the face of a young man. So there is an impact there on, I think it's, it's, I think it's interesting that we have several stories of conversion to go back to intersectionality that have an impact on gender. And I think that, I I think it's an underexplored dimension of whatever happens to Paul 
what it does to his gender. Because I think that Galatian, we I think we talked about this the last time I was on the pod, podcast, but Galatian has a very gendered dimension. And I think that in Galatian, that also has this reflection about conversion uh, or change, however we want to call it, uh, the 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 body the persona that Paul presents is a very masculine uh, persona, very male, very strong male persona, um, and I can't help but think that it might have something to do with this uh, quote conversion experience that he has. But it's definitely an under um, analyzed dimension, I'd say, of the of the letter. Yeah, just thinking sort of more about Paul, uh, conscious not to make us talk too much about Paul, because I know the three of us from our side are all Pauline scholars, are probably inclined to do that the most. But um, I think it's so fascinating with the conversion calling narratives, the difference between how Paul reflects on that versus what we get in Acts. Um, and uh, uh, Brittany Wilson's written on the sort of disability component of Paul's um, conversion calling narrative in Acts. And I just think that's fascinating. I think that's such a good illustration of where an intersectional lens is useful because there's a lot going on in that story and also what what is the impact of, of Paul's blinding and how does that kind of configure things theologically uh, there's, there's sort of a lot a lot to unpack in that text and that's exactly where approaching it from those different perspectives is really useful for sort of fleshing out and um, the richness that's in there. I like that you mentioned um, the uh, gendered dimension of conversion in Galatians uh, because I think in um, uh, in my experience the more like uh, popular Christian rhetoric about, for example, canonicity, um, you, you often get um, uh, the final uh, logion of the, I think it's Gospel of Thomas 144 or something, um, brought up as a kind of obvious reason why um, Christians shouldn't be reading the Gospel of Thomas. And of course, that that's the, that's the passage that says, ah, oh, yes, well, um, you know, Mary can be saved uh, if she becomes a man. Uh, and Jesus will somehow make that possible. Uh, and uh, this is brought up a lot as some kind of utterly absurd idea that uh, is pure evidence that the Christians who wrote this were crazy and whatever. But I, I think it, it, it like, I, I love that you said that actually Paul himself brings a, a gendered element to uh, conversion and salvation. And there's, a, there's an aspect of that, that for him, conversion demands a kind of masculinization um as it as it were at least that's what i gathered from um from what you said i think it often goes unrecognized that actually paul also brings a gendered element to salvation and while he wouldn't say probably probably wouldn't say you have to literally become a biological male in order to be saved he does have aspects of um calling people to masculinize uh as a as an aspect of conversion and as an aspect of ethical living hence what you get in first corinthians act like men so again, the book we've been talking about today is called The Complexity of Conversion, Intersectional Perspectives on Religious Change in Antiquity and Beyond, uh, and it's published by Equinox Publishing. Uh, and I just wanted to uh, ask both of you um, if there are any other highlights from the book um, that uh, you really thought stood out and were really helpful and exciting to you um, that um, that we that you want our listeners to hear about uh, and perhaps uh, provide motivation for them to go get and read the book themselves. What were your favorite aspects about it that haven't been discussed? 
Well, I think I have two things. I think any book that has uh, one chapter that's called Shedding Religious Skin and the other one that's called Creating a New, Skin, a new Sex should be read. But um, I also very much appreciated, and we haven't talked about this, but I very much appreciated uh, one article that goes back to the, the connection between conversion and healing and talks about uh, the Wesley brothers and sort of thinks about what the dynamics of disability in conversion uh, implies. And that is connected a bit to what we were saying with the conversion story of acts that's also about the healing. And I think that to me, that was a very important piece in what it what conversion what ancient conversion also and uh, later interpretation of it also means for the perception of the body and uh, the percep perception of sort of healing in in that regard i think i would say that um what is really the strength with this book is that it's moving back and forth so much and i think that uh, of course People today want to have oh, one highlight, one article, read these 20 pages and you get everything. I think this is actually a book where you will get uh, by reading comparatively, reading the different essays. I mean, we have we have texts that focus on contemporary discussion of interreligious dialogue and, and co uh, codes of conduct when it comes to mission and conversion, a case from Norway. But we also have articles that are really going deep into ancient text reading, re reading original languages, doing, doing exegesis uh, on the same matter. So I think that the dialogue between these, these different ways of approaching the same topic or not the same topic, I think that is what is really valuable with a volume like this. It's not, it's not, uh, it can, of course, you can, if you're specifically interested in Paul, like I know many people are, you will find interesting things here, but you will also broaden the perspective by taking the, the, the time really to read all the essays or to read some of the essays together. I, I think I will I will support that, and in particular because it's a bit different than other collections on conversion, since it has this intersectional perspective, and since it is, you know, paying attention to slaves, paying attention to ethnicity, to sex, paying attention to the reception history and contemporary practices. So I think that's that's what I think is, is most valuable with the volume, the volume itself. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Really grateful for um, hearing a bit about the book and also just thinking about the use of intersectionality generally uh, and how we complicate the category of conversion in the ancient world. It's been really interesting. Um, and I love that encouragement at the end to sort of read comparatively across the volume and perhaps resist the urge we often sometimes have to um, to home in on one particular essay that um, speaks to our research area. Um, yeah, so thank you both again so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.